Each episode, we bring you B2B leaders to learn about their successes, fails, and what's working for them in the market. Before we get into today's episode, we have a quick announcement. We just dropped the first in-depth study into account-based marketing in the region. Together with the independent research company, Shift Research Group, we surveyed more than 50 senior APAC marketing practitioners to uncover ABM usage, motivations, benefits, and pain points across the Asia-Pacific region. Along with a panel of ABM experts, we provide actionable insight, optimization techniques, and solutions to key pain points identified in the survey. The State of Account-Based Marketing APAC report is an invaluable guide for B2B marketers seeking to harness the power of ABM. Get your copy today at abm.xgrowth.com.au forward slash report. That's abm.xgrowth.com.au forward slash report. Or you can just hit the link in the podcast description to get your copy. That's enough from me. Let's dive right into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode. I'm Shane Hoda with X-Growth, and today I'm talking to Tim Roll, General Manager for APAC at Piano.io, about what is happening in the media and publishing industry and the challenges that the sector is facing today. On that note, let's dive in. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Let's talk about the industry as a whole, the, the media and publishing world. And what I'd love for you to do is if you could give us a bit of a glimpse in terms of what is happening and what are some of the trends that you're seeing in in, uh, in, in this space right now? I think the start point in any discussion around media and publishing is is how important it is as a sector to the functioning of democracy, to the education of a population, to knowledge, to, you know... An, an understanding that a community has of what is happening in the country in which they live. And the, the key thing to understand about media and publishing is it has been in a state of constant disruption for the last 20 years. And a lot of that disruption, in fact, all of it fundamentally has been caused by the emergence of the internet. So, so if you step back for a minute and you think 25 years ago, most people consumed their news in a print format, they had it delivered to their house. They were being updated on news once a day. They sometimes, you know, they watched the news on television at a fixed point in the day, maybe the nine o'clock or 10 o'clock news at night. And of course, those behaviors have been shattered in the last 25 years. If you think about, you know, consumption habits, things have moved from print to web to now significant proportion of consumption is on mobile devices. There's been an enormous decline in print sales. And of course, most newspapers and media companies were making most of their money from the sale of print products, whether through subscription or, you know, at the newsstand. And of course, from an advertising perspective, you know, it's easy to forget that 25 years ago, the local press in most countries were making huge amounts of money from, from selling secondhand goods. They were the original Ebays. You know, that's all gone. That's clearly all gone to the likes of eBay and, and others. Um, so, you know, the, what's happened in media is fundamentally the business model of media has been significantly disrupted. And I should add to that, obviously, the impact that Google, the likes of Google and Facebook have had on, you know, the business model of newspapers. And I'm sure we'll touch on that later. But but the fundamental issue is 
how do you afford journalism and how do you afford to run a media business in the modern world and and, and that's the question that media and publishing have been grappling with for 15 years there've always been potential answers some have been successful some haven't but you know that disruption is acute as as acute now as it was 10 15 years ago that's very interesting i think you know, I'd love to get your opinion on this. I feel like, you know, during the pandemic, this even became clearer where the media outlets were were fighting for grabbing attention. And some of the some of the headlines were, were really disturbing. And um, and they were they were designed to infuse fear or the need to stay up to date and constantly be aware of what's happening and to a point that you know some people argue that it's really hard to find good journalism primarily because these these media companies are having their lunch eaten by social media platforms and they have to find ways to kind of hook you in uh, so that so that um, you know you don't go away you don't you don't go on Facebook you don't go on on Google or Twitter or, or whatever it is to get your news from there and we we had a chat on about this previously where now there is an, the, the emergence of the move to subscribe to the subscription model in the in the media space right and that's not happening only in traditional newspapers and publishers but also in, in media outlets what's up with that what is happening there can you unpack that a little bit for us sure look I don't think this is something that's particular to the pandemic. I think this has been going on for a period of time. So, so, so my background is in journalism. I worked at national newspapers within the UK, actually, originally. You know, if I think back 11 years, the, the simple objective, because of the decline in print consumption, was to try and get as large an audience on our website as possible. So we were setting very, very aggressive growth targets whether it's 7 million users a month or 50 million or 100 million, those were the kind of growth trajectories we were looking at. And, and the reason for that is there was an assumption that there was a correlation between the volume of users and the amount of consumption they had on the site, i.e. how many pages they read, and the amount of money that would be made from advertising. And there isn't a direct correlation between those two things. You know, The amount of money that publishers make from publishing – per thousand pages consumed, the CPM rate, as it's called, has declined dramatically over the last 10 years. So you end up in this never-ending cycle of trying to, you need more and more page views consumed, you need more and more users in order to make the same amount of money. And the one way to do that is to produce increasingly sensationalist or, you know, attention-grabbing content, you know, to go for the headline that doesn't quite articulate what's in the article you know to cover to cover celebrities and trending topics from seo you know you you end up chasing to the bottom of the barrel and there is no doubt that i think from say 12 years ago to five years ago it was quite alarming actually the sensationalist nature of most newspaper content whether you're talking about serious journalism serious websites or indeed you know slightly more viral ones you couldn't you were starting to get to a point where you couldn't really tell the difference between the two because they seem to cover the same topics you know what we call what you would call journalism i.e someone else has covered something so you just cover their article and, and you're trying to get seo traffic and you know i think what's interesting is 
what's happened in the last few years is as publishers have realized that that business model doesn't make sense because it affects brand equity, it affects brand value. You know, I think in every country you look at, there will have been people questioning the veracity or the quality of journalism of most titles because of the content they were seeing. And, and we're not even touching here on fake news. You know, actually, because of that decline, perceived decline in quality, it opened the door to fake news because it, it wasn't so surprising to see some of these sensationalist things. You, you know, you touched on subscriptions there. I think what we've seen in the last four years is publishers have took a gamble and what they perceived as a gamble at the time is to actually reverse that strategy and say do you know what we're going to focus on quality here because we believe there is an audience who will pay for what we do if we focus on the production of quality and what we've seen you know and certainly piano as a company has been part of this is a wave of subscription models being introduced across the world And, and actually because of the pandemic that wave has been hugely successful. You know, you know, subscription models have boomed. Um, and part of the reason for that is people really wanted high-quality information about what was happening about the pandemic. They started to value the insightful, high-quality journalism that was telling them in an authoritative voice what was, what was happening. You know, I think subscription models also give publishers a certainty about revenue that they were not you know, getting before from an advertising model. So, you know, I think the pandemic, if anything, accelerated trends towards subscription. That's interesting. And, you know, I, I definitely remember the time that I think one of the, one of the earliest kind of adopters of, of the subscription model in the, in the newspaper space or, or, or in the kind of news space was, was, um, was New York Times. And I remember the time that New York Times built this magnificent building in new york and i know you talked about hey quality i'm not going to be talking about new york times quality i have friends who swear by it and i have friends who uh who cannot stand a single article from uh new york times but i remember they built this amazing building in new york and they had to the moment it was finished they had to sell it because they were almost going bankrupt and they they did the shift to to subscription and they're booming now i mean new york times is is killing it in terms of their their success but also there are stories that are of, of the, on, the, on the other side of the coin, right? And, and I think the most recent one was, was the CNN Plus where they went into a subscription model, paid $300 million of setting up the whole thing up and within a couple of months just turned it off. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that in terms of like, what do you think? Do you think the subscription model is going to go strong forward? Are there ways that kind of some of these these media companies get it wrong? What are your thoughts on on, on that, on, on those two aspects of the subscription world in media? Yeah, I mean, that, look, that's a that, that's a big question. There there are many aspects to it. If you if you put it in the context of what's happening at the moment, that there is certainly a case that for media streaming and that's and news in that context and media streaming platforms, whether it's Netflix or Paramount or others. That there is certainly a slowdown happening at the moment. Mm. But I think that's entirely predictable because we've all just come out of our homes, having sat there for two years, and we don't need to be subscribed to all of them. We don't need to be entertained as much because we can go out and talk to people. You know, We can go out for drinks, we can go out for dinner, which we couldn't do before. The other humans. I, yeah, well, yeah, sure, exactly. Now, 
That doesn't mean that there is a general decline in subscriptions in other parts of the media sector. So, so there is a term used at the moment, and you'll hear it, people saying, have we reached peak subscription? And that refers specifically to media streaming. We're in a fortunate position because we've got, you know, we've got about a thousand clients, three thousand websites on our platform running, you know, subscription models or variants thereof. So we see the data. There is no doubt that during the pandemic, it was growing at insane rate. You know, mm. publishers who were launching a subscription model, it was growing at, you know, eighty percent year on year in their volume of subscribers, you know, through twenty twenty. Wow. Through 2021, it was like 50, 60%. This was us taking a benchmark across all our clients. Yeah, It's interesting now, you are not seeing those crazy growth rates, but you're not seeing a huge decline. We're not seeing people canceling in droves. So, so to address the sort of first part of your question, subscription models are robust and the model works for publishers who are implementing it and running it correctly. Now, not all publishers are capable of doing it correctly. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone, you know, you know, to have a good subscription model, you need to have the right product. You need to have the right content. You need to have the right pricing, the right packaging, you know, of, of that proposition. And, you know, some people get that wrong. Mm. But I think the way to think about it is, do you have a core audience who really value what you produce and have a relationship with your brand that would enable them to feel comfortable paying for what you do. And, and if the answer to that question is yes, then you can build a subscription model from it. The, the probably, well, one of the more interesting stats that we see is on most of our clients' websites, roughly 10% of the audience is responsible to 70 to 80% of the activity. So in other words, most sites have a core audience who consume most of it. And of course, from a subscription perspective, that's where you're going to focus your attention on. And it is remarkable how consistent that percentage is, you know, across different countries, across different types of, um, you know, content journalism. Interesting. Okay. I want to change topic a little bit. I want to talk about cookies and specifically third-party cookies. Obviously, the media industry is, is heavily dependent and, and, and cookies play a big role in, in the media and publishing space. What do you think is going to happen when cookies are gone and they're not being tracked anymore? Uh, honestly, I don't think it's going to have as big an impact as everyone fears. Let, let, let's be clear about the, the two types of cookie. First party cookie, that enables you to, you know, when you revisit a site, you're logged in automatically again. It enables you, you know, on an e-commerce site, if you have put something in a shopping cart previously, the next time you go back, it will still be there. That's the first party cookie. They're not going anywhere. That will still continue to exist. And that enables really key functions on websites, you know, whether you're commerce or media or whatever. Third party cookies, what they enable is for an individual user to be tracked across multiple websites. So... Someone coming to the Sydney Morning Herald website, someone is able to detect the sites that that user has previously visited, the products they have previously looked at. And, and the idea is that they can then be served with more relevant contextual advertising. That's what you're not going to be able to do. Mm. They're going to go. And, and 
I don't know, whether it's November next year or, or beyond that, Google have to do it because it's gone on Safari. Apple don't allow them anymore. Mm. Mozilla don't allow them anymore. So a chunk of the market already doesn't have it. I, 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 we as piano have always argued that we think this is an incredibly positive move because actually a lot of that third party tracking and, you know, was, I hate to use the word, but I'm going to do it. it. It's slightly seed. It's slightly seedy because that data is essentially being traded in lots of different parts of the market and you're being hit with adverts that are perhaps not directly relevant to you. There's information about you being shared. You don't know where that's being shared to. And, you know, the, the, I think the the way to think about it is it is going to make, certainly from a media and publishing context, it's going to make publishers much more focused on catering to their core audience, encouraging them to log in, to register on the site so that they can then be tracked as an individual, so then they can gather data about them. And if you're thinking about the use of that data, it's them being able to say to an advertiser, well, look, we have a group of people on our site who regularly consume content about this topic. It might be motoring, it might be travel, it might be holidays, you know, it could be news, it could be politics. But the publisher has that data about their users they are respecting that data about their users. Mm. Um, they are collecting data about their users, whether that's their age, their gender, their location, you know, their behavior on the site. And really any successful business these days really thrives and survives based on the deeper understanding of their audience. So we think, I, I, we think it's a really positive thing that it's going to force businesses, not actually not just media and publishing, even just traditional brands. They're going to have to think very carefully about how they are catering and building up the identity of their core users. So I think it's a very positive thing. I would imagine, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but I, I would imagine that this would even further reinforce the move of media companies and publishing companies towards a subscription model and changing their business model towards a subscription uh, model. Do, do you think, do you think that, would be, that would be an outcome of it? Definitely. If you think back to that stat that 10% of the audience are responsible for 80% of the activity, you've got to try and identify who those 10% are because it's arguable that you could focus, if you know that audience, if you understand their behavior on their site, if you know something about them from a profiling and segmentation perspective, it's going to help you super serve that audience. It's going to help you know what how to cater for them. So there may well be things that you can stop doing. You know, you you, you know, if you think about the ninety percent who are not consuming, you know, that eighty percent of content. Well, it's arguable you don't need to worry about them anymore because mm. that ten percent could give you everything you need to to survive as a business. So it will switch the mindset to a certain extent. It will. Um, you know, if you understand your audience, then everything is possible. And of course, if you understand the audience, then building a subscription model for them is a heck of a lot easier because you know what they're interested in. You know what their behavior is and, and you super serve them. Got it. Got it. Okay. Let's change, let's change gears again. What are some of the opportunities, some of the areas of growth that you see for publishers or you see publishers currently exploring 
And we talked about subscription uh, in, in quite a lot of detail, but what are some of the, some of the areas that you're seeing publishers are, are pursuing right now? I, I think what we're seeing emerging is definitely a hybrid approach. So what I would certainly not argue is subscription is the only revenue stream that, that publishers or media companies will be going after. I think you know that diversification of revenue streams is is the way that most media and publishing companies are think, thinking about how their revenue will be derived in the future. And what I mean by that is running a subscription model doesn't mean you cannot continue to have an advertising business. Mm. So the two can absolutely coexist. You know, an interesting stat for you. In any given month, 70% of the users of most of our clients' websites are only consuming one piece of content, just viewing one page view. So they're completely sort of, you know, they might have come from SEO. They've seen an article they're interested in. They click on the link on SEO or on social media. They go to the article and they read it. That doesn't need to change. You can still serve digital advertising to those users. You know, the reality is you're only going to hit someone with a subscription model, you know, or with an offer to subscribe once they've consumed, you know, a few pieces of content. You're going to let them try it out, in other words. So advertising and um, subscriptions can coexist. And I think that's an important point for people to understand. They're not, you know, mutually exclusive. But I think what we're seeing emerging beyond that is as media companies get more understanding of their audience, they're starting to think of other opportunities to build a relationship. So put it this way, a subscription is a transaction. A membership is a relationship. And I think we will see a lot more media companies take what I'd classify as a media, uh, sorry, a, a membership approach and they will start to put on events for their subscribers. Mm. They will start to, and, and, and I'm seeing this already, they're putting on festivals for their membership. That could be book festivals or music festivals or you know, even car appreciation festivals. Because they have that audience, because they know they're interested in a topic, they are then creating events in order to generate revenue from that audience. So I think events are a really critical revenue stream for most publishers. I, it, this was a trend that was happening three years ago, which was absolutely you know, killed off by the pandemic. But I think you'll see a lot more of that in the next two years. Interesting. So it, it almost becomes, you're saying that the media space will almost become like, a, like an exclusive membership thing that you're pampered and, and for the whales of your audience, the big ones who consume all of your content, that the 10% that you mentioned, the media companies will become more of this, the membership and, and, and they will pamper you with, with events. Obviously you're going to be paying a premium for that. It's, it's not, it's not a, it's not a, you know, $12 a month kind of, uh, kind of uh, subscription. It just really goes high but you're going to get a lot more perks out of that. That's, is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah. I, I, two parts of that. I think one is absolutely as part of a core membership or subscription, they will be looking at other ways in order to generate revenue from you. But that revenue will be, you know, something that is focused on your interests. So, you know, if I give the motoring or cars example, you know, if you run a successful motoring website or publication, you know those people are really interested in cars. So putting on a great car festival with 
I don't know, with races and, you know, everything would really excite them. It's a great thing to do. I think, you know, you will see a lot of that. I think secondarily, as part of any subscription, it's interesting how important perks and benefits are. So even at a sort of slightly more basic level, as a result of subscribing to a particular publication, you will see a lot more sort of, um, you know, affinity deals put in place. So as a result of this subscription, you get a discount on it or you get an invitation to why, you know, and that could be mm. cinema tickets, that could be, you know. So I, I think that membership approach and making someone feel part of a brand is 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 an absolute trend. It is sort of, I'm throwing stats at you, but another really interesting stat is in any given month, if we look across our entire database of all our clients, roughly 40 to 50% of subscribers are not consuming any content at all, yet they have a subscription. If you look at it over three months, they are using it. And I think it's an interesting mindset switch because there's this assumption that if you're subscribed to, I don't know, the Australian or the Sydney Morning Herald, you know, or the New York Times, there is a correlation between loyalty and consumption. It's not, you know, we would suggest it's not the way to think about it. You know, there are many reasons why someone becomes a member or a subscriber or something that sit outside consumption alone. You know, so they may feel an affinity that to that brand it may give them something else it may be a sense of status or it may simply be the fact that when something happens that they need to be informed about they know the source they're going to go to so it, it you know from a marketing perspective it's it's about the relationship mm. rather than the behavior that sits within that relationship got it got it okay a lot of the people who are listening to our podcast as well and especially since we're doing this as a vertical specific podcast, talking about publishing in media space, or might be targeting this, this vertical, might be going after this vertical, might be selling to this vertical. What is your advice to someone who's trying to target the media sector? That's a good question. Media, media businesses are interesting in that it's arguable there's a fundamental conflict at the heart of any media company. And actually, now that's almost a, a three-way conflict between the editorial team, the commercial team, and the technology team. And they may well have different objectives, different priorities, different understandings, or you know appreciations of what's important. It's probably the single bit of advice, if you are selling to a media company, is to understand that dynamic. And understand that you may be talking to one part of the organization, but if you want to be successful marketing a B2B product to a media company, you've got to understand how those three elements are, are, are interrelating within that company. There may be someone in the editorial team who is desperately keen for your service or your product, but you need to also persuade someone in the commercial team that that product has value for that organization. So, so I think first thing is understand the complexity. I think the... The second thing is, and, and actually this is a more general thing, you've got to listen to what they're saying and the challenges they're facing. It's very easy simply to go in, market your product, talk about your its capabilities. You know, And I think this is a byproduct of the pandemic, actually, is, is we've ended up on Zoom calls just broadcasting how fantastic our you know, services or products are, but, because that's what you end up doing on a Zoom call. 
I think the most important thing now is listening to the challenges, understanding the peculiarities of the brand or the media company you're talking to, and then taking that and applying, you know, your company's expertise or, or you know, key focus to that challenge, to that problem. Media companies are, are you know, as I said at the beginning of this, that they're, they're significantly disrupted. You know, so they're really looking to work in partnership with people who can help them address those core challenges. Got it. No, this is Tim. This has been absolutely awesome, and I have a few rapid fire questions that I want to ask you. But before I go there, do you think there's anything that we didn't touch on, or maybe I didn't ask that you you think is relevant to the topic that we're we're talking about? We could talk for two and a half hours about this. You know, there, there are so many different angles on it. But look, I, I think. The core trends, as 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 I see them, based on my experience in the industry, I think, yeah, I think we've covered a lot of it. Awesome. Let's do a rapid fire questions then. So, the first thing that I want to ask you is, I I know I know you're you're into your reading. What is one resource? Could be a book, it could be a blog, could be a podcast, could be whatever it is that has had a fundamental impact. It has had a big impact on on you both from work work wise or personally what comes to mind interesting i i i i've i've never been a huge fan of self-help books but i think there was one book that did actually have an impact on on me and it is a book by an american journalist called dan harris called 10 percent happier listen there's a degree of you know americanism in it which you can ignore but the fundamental fundamental message of the book is look everyone has stressful life everyone is trying to do too much everyone has pressures on them both work and you know home life and family and children etc and i think you know i have four children so there was definitely a point in my life where i was had four young children under eight and i was working and had quite a pressure job and i was just like all over the place 10 percent happier's core message is look you've got to look after yourself there are just some key principles behind it. But don't try and fundamentally change everything about yourself. Just work on small changes. Make yourself 10% happier. And, and, and actually, some of the simple messages in that book really had a beneficial impact for me. I love it. I love it. Okay. Question number two. If you could give one advice to people who are marketing to the media industry and the, uh, and the publishing industry, what would that advice be? I think I might have said this already. Just listen. Just listen, you know, to, to the challenges they have. Every media company is different. They have a slightly different audience. They have a different set of challenges. They have a different he- legacy. Do not view them as, you know, all the same. Listen to the challenges they have and then seek to address them with whatever you're trying to market to them. Awesome. Question number three, who are some of the influencers that you follow? I, I mean, look, influencers in a in a business context you are predominantly talking about what you see on linkedin you know i would suggest i i am finding linkedin incredibly frustrating at the moment you know it is hugely valuable from the you know the volume of contacts helping you profile different companies understand who you can talk to but actually you know it i think it's lost its way in terms of people understanding how to use it and as a result, I have stopped actually reading 
any of the volume of messages I see in my LinkedIn feed. I think one's got to be really careful about the kind of messaging that one is putting out on LinkedIn because I think it's it's blurring the line between personal and professional. It is it is increasingly unrealistic in its representation of people and how they behave and the value that's derived. So it's a very long-winded way of saying, I, I, I don't think I'm listening to many influencers, you know, or following many influencers at the moment in the marketing or sales space. It, it may well be a reflection of my age, but I'm just a bit skeptical at the moment. I love it. I love it. Good answer. Last question. Last question, Tim. What's something that excites you about, I mean, you are in the B2B space and selling to other businesses. What's something that excites you about, about B2B today? Today, the, the single thing is I am absolutely loving being able to go out and talk to people in person. You know, after two, two and a half years of not being able to, it is just so much more powerful to be able to go and see people, sit in a room with them, listen to them, talk to them, build a relationship with them. And, you know, this is how business was done before. It's how business will always be done. But I think that's exciting for me today. The challenge, however, is actually persuading everyone to do that. You know, people still want to be at home, you know. And, and there are certain sort of clients or prospects who sometimes said to me, oh, I don't know about that. I don't think we're going to meet up. I, I might, well, let's just do it as a call. But I think we've got to get back and see each other in person. Definitely going to take a little bit of time, a little bit of time. But, uh, but I hear you, sir. I hear you. Well, Tim, this has been an awesome conversation. I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And I'm pretty sure a lot of our audience is going to get a lot of valuable out of the conversation. So uh, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. This episode of Growth Colony was produced by Alexander Hipwell. It was edited by Dave Samito with additional editing and music arrangement also by Alexander Hipwell. Special thanks to Tina Wabe, Liza Maywald and Rod Hoda. We couldn't make this show without you. The show is hosted by Shaheen Hoda. Don't forget to pick up your copy of the State of Account-Based Marketing APAC report at abm.xgrowth.com.au forward slash report. That's abm.xgrowth.com.au forward slash report. Or just hit the link in the podcast description to get your copy. Thanks again for all the support and look forward to you joining us again in the next one.